Hi, I'm James Powell. My wife, Brittany, and I pastor here at Anchor Church in Alabama. And whether you're joining us through the podcast or on the weekends, we count you as part of our family. I hope today that, that through the message, whether you're kicking the tires of faith or exploring a relationship with God, that it will be both encouraging and challenging. And for some of you, this will be a way that you continue to grow in your faith. So whatever spot you're at today, I hope that this message meets you right where you're at. Let's dive in. Well, hey, I'm glad you're here this weekend. We're kicking off a new series. Uh, I'm taking the next three weeks after this weekend, so four total weeks, to talk on this idea of that's my church, all right? And I need you to put a little emphasis. I'm going to have you say it with me this morning, but you can't just read it like, that's my church. I mean, ain't nobody want to hear you talk about that, right? But I want to hear, that's my church. Could you say that with me? That's my church. That's my church. And maybe you grew up around church. You have some background with church. Maybe you, you come to church recently in the last decade or last five weeks or last five days. Maybe this is your first weekend at church. But we all have these words that when somebody says church, that kind of pop into our head. Maybe it's an image or a thought. I want you to do this this weekend at the very top of your notes. Would you write down what are the first words that pop into your mind when I say the word church? When I say the word church, some of you are like chicken. Church is chicken, you know. But, but what pops into your mind when I say the word church? And accompanied with words, because words are these buckets with which we feel emotion, right? There are words that you can say and I can say, but it is the context with which my life is lived and the emotional response that I have to that word that gives that bucket a feeling. And so what I want to know is not only are the words that pop into your mind when you hear the word church, but what are the feelings that you feel when you hear the word church? See, I think a lot of us, we, we look at the word church or we look at the idea of church and while we may be staring at something similar, it's almost like going to the optometrist. Anybody in here enjoy going to the optometrist? Yeah, not very, it's, it's like dentist, optometrist, right? Um, I love dentist people. Okay, but there's something that always confuses me when I go to the optometrist. They sit you down in that machine. You know the machine I'm talking about, not the one that in your eye. That's a horrible thing that they do. But when they put that thing up to your eye and what do they do? They say, what's better, one or two? One or two? Can I just be honest? I've been lying for years. I can't tell the difference between one and two. Uh, two, two is better. And then they go one or two. I was like, whoa, I think two is worse because one and two are worse than before. But you've been there. You've had that moment in the optometrist maybe where, where you, you did this or Maybe you got great eyes and you picked up someone's reading glasses and you put them on and you went, whoa, right? The object in front of you did not change. What changed your perspective and your ability to have clear vision of it was the lens through which you looked. The lens through which we see church has a lot to do with our experience, the words and emotions we feel. While we can look at church, and it may be the same thing, how I feel about it or my experience or lack of experience around it shapes the lens through which I look. 
And if you look through the wrong lens, it will distort everything that you see. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to be better about wearing my glasses, right? And my son wears glasses, and I'm always having to tell him to put his glasses on. And my wife reminded me very gently that I, too, am supposed to wear glasses. And so if I'm going to tell him, I need to do it, too. And so every so often, though, I can't tell. I'll just kind of squint my eyes, but there'll be a smudge on my glasses. And my wife will have to clear away the lens for me so that I can see clearly. My hope is, over the next four weeks, that we clear the lens through which we look at church. See, when we approach Scripture, we've got one of two options. We can project our lens onto Scripture, or we can reflect our lives by Scripture. Are we projecting or reflecting? When we talk about church, because see, church is not a new idea. It's not an American idea. It's not something that's 21st century. This is something that dates back thousands of years. As a matter of fact, this weekend, I want to start this idea of that's my church, looking at a passage of Scripture where Jesus is speaking to one of his closest followers. His name was Peter. But to give us some context, before I read that scripture, Peter and Jesus are having this moment. It's one of the most profound moments in all of their lives. Jesus and Peter had a very unique relationship. And Peter and Jesus are walking and talking, and Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Now, this is important. If I asked you to say who I was, you could come up with a lot of adjectives. Husband, father, pastor, teacher. There may be a lot of different adjectives. But what Jesus is asking is not an adjective, it's an identity. He's asking, who do you say that I am? And there were many people who watched Jesus and followed him who said he was a great teacher. He was a rabbi, a teacher of the ancient texts. He was a healer. He was a miracle worker. These are all great adjectives, but they do not truly speak of the identity of who Jesus is. And so he asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. This is important. Some of us, maybe we grew up and we heard Jesus Christ always together. You thought it was like James Powell, first and last name. But Jesus was his name. The Christ was his identity. The Christ was this promise that he would be the hope of the world sent from heaven to this earth to reconcile God and humanity once and for all. And so when Peter responds, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, Jesus here has a very important response to Peter. We're going to pick up in the second half of Scripture in Matthew. We're going to go to chapter 16, and this is what it says in verse 17. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Take a mental highlighter out, highlight it on the screen, highlight it in your mind, sear it on your heart. The first mention of the church in the second half of scripture is Jesus, God in the bod speaking, and he said this, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. This is very important because Jesus is establishing the I chart for the church. 
Oh, I cannot determine your lens this weekend. Only you know the lens through which you look. But the eye chart is clear. Jesus said, I will build my church. My church. And so I decided to do a little research. I went back and I got into the original language. And I wanted to see what does the word my really mean. You know what my really means when you get in the original root word? It means my. It means my. It's what it means. Mine. It's ownership of. Oh, my two-year-old son, Grayson, he knows ownership. He's two. It was embedded in him. There is this one little toy Spider-Man. You could throw it into a barrel of Spider-Man, and that boy would come out and say, that's Mine. He knows his from everything else around it. Jesus is letting us know this isn't just a thing that I'm starting. This is my church. See, I think that's important because sometimes I can get in a little bit of a tug of war with Jesus. I can be like, that's my, this is my church. You ever got there? Or you want to compare churches, cause churches to compete? When Jesus started the church, the capital C church, all of the churches that we see should operate as an extension of Jesus' church. So we see my equals my. That's pretty easy. I like it when it works out that way. But when you get to the word church, and that gets a little bit tricky. The word church here, the original word is ecclesia, ecclesia. Ecclesia meaning community of people, a gathering around worshiping the one true liberating king, Jesus. Oh, that's very interesting. I love that another definition of this word ecclesia means a public gathering where citizens would come from out of their houses and out of their homes to a gathering to reconcile and worship God. Well, this is important because when I talk about the lens that I look through church, if I'm not careful, I'll miss that the very first thing that Jesus did was he spoke to a person, Peter, about the church. He didn't just speak to a large gathering. He didn't speak to a building or a style. He spoke to Peter about people. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he did not speak of a location. He spoke of a group of people who were loved by him and would worship and love him back. It's very interesting. See, I want you to take a moment as I talked about uh, what pops in your mind. Did buildings pop in your mind? Did you get a mental image of a place? Because when it comes to churches, there are all different types of buildings. There are big buildings. There are smaller buildings. There are beautiful buildings. There are not beautiful buildings. Uh, there's stained glass. There are pews. All different types of locations. And sometimes we misrepresent the location. We say, I'm going to go to church. But really, when Jesus started this, he was talking about being the church, not attending one. Or maybe what pops in your mind is a style of church. You, you thought of a, a certain way, like maybe it was uh, with robes or suits and ties. Or maybe the first time someone invited you to a church, you were overdressed or underdressed in your own mind. There are different styles, but when Jesus speaks of this ecclesia, I will build my group of people, he doesn't reference a style there. He's representing a heart of people, a service to him and to the world around them. So when he says, I will build my church, if I'm not careful, the lens I look through is a building or a style or a way. 
But when Jesus first spoke about his church, he spoke to a person about people. About people. That means that you and I are part of his church. What makes this a church isn't the stage. It isn't a microphone. It isn't a sign out front that even says the word church. It's the people inside of it that make up that ecclesia. I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in church. I remember in 1988, I was three years old, and my family moved to Aniana, Alabama. And we moved to be a part of a church called Day Spring Tabernacle. Churches always get nicknames, and our, our church's nickname was Day Springs. You know, there's no S in it, but there was. It was just a different place. But Day Springs Tabernacle, right? And that was the church we were part of. It was here. It was in that other building. I remember when we first got here, it was beautiful orange carpet. Not even the pretty kind of orange. Like bold, like Bozo's hair, orange, right? And there was brown paneling, so you, it was Halloween all year long. You know, it was beautiful. But I remember there was that, and there were pews. Maybe some of you, you grew up in church, and there were pews. The one thing that was great about pews is people didn't want to sit down during worship because it was uncomfortable, right? They were made for sanding is what pews were. As a matter of fact, I have a, a memory of a pew. We used to have these people come through, and they were called the power team. Oh, man, they were big, strong guys, and they would talk to you about how God's power was incredible, and they would flex, and they would break bats. It was awesome, okay? I, I didn't fully understand it, but they were breaking bats, and they would break bricks with their head. And so at four years old, I'm sitting on the side of a pew, and the, the armrest is about this thick with wood, and I'm thinking, I love God too, and I want to see him do mighty, powerful things through me. Skapow! Instead of me breaking the pew, the pew broke me, right? I got this scar right here on my forehead that will forever remind me of that moment. But we had pews, and, and we sang songs that are different than the songs that we sing now. We used to sing songs like, love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. Oh, come on, you know, or we would sing, a flag flown from the castle of my heart, the castle of my heart. We would sing all of these different songs. Oh, Lord, in the power just now. And you had to clap really fast, you know. And the faster the song got, the more excited we got. Okay, but that's how I grew up. But if you ask the five-year-old me, James, what's church? I would have described that. I would have described that, but what I'd have told you more than the location, more than the style, I'd have told you about the people who loved and cared for me. So the location can change. The style can change. But when Jesus is speaking of the purpose and identity of the church, it all started with people. With people. When we continue in the second half of Scripture, we see that there's this elder in the church. His name's Paul. And Paul becomes a quipper of other churches. He's known as this word as an apostle. An apostle would be a pastor of other pastors. He would oversee these local churches in different cities, whether it was in Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi. He would oversee these churches and help write instructions to them. And one of the things that he does in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, is he uses a metaphor unlike any other metaphor. He uses a relationship unlike any other relationship. He speaks of the church being the bride of Christ. Now, this is a very important thing because we have to remember that the context is not today. 
The context is not today where you can fall in and out of love, right? The context then was it was a commitment, and it was a lifetime commitment. So when he's speaking of this bride of Christ, it was the most important central relationship that he could even possibly reference. The context surrounding this is concrete. And so Paul begins to write as the church being the bride of Christ. Now, I've been married uh, nine years to my beautiful wife this Wednesday. Nine years. And some of you, it's been nine months. Yeah, you should applaud for her because it's been a tough go for her with me, obviously. But, but some of you have been married longer than nine years. Some of you shorter than nine years. Some of you are nine years away from being married. But we all know this, that marriage is an important relationship. It's a very important relationship. It requires such intimacy and vulnerability. And I knew early on that I loved my wife. I, I, knew, I knew before she was my wife, I loved her. But when she became my wife, it was like, man, I'll fight for you, girl. Like, you know, it, there, was, there were these moments before you're married where you have your friends and she has her friends. And your friends may not like him or her. And they can make all of those statements before you get married. But when you get married, that changes. As a matter of fact, could you imagine this weekend if somebody came up to me and they said, hey, James, we'd love for you to come over and have dinner at our house tonight. We're going to grill some steaks. We'll make the boys some hamburgers. We would just love that. What can I bring? Don't bring anything. As a matter of fact, the one thing we want you to not bring is your wife. If you could just make sure, like, we love you. We love you, but, man, your wife, man, we just... You know, she's just not our flavor. Like, we don't really get along with her or mess with her. You can tell the people that really know us because they're like, I, you're mouthing to me. It would be the other way around. But that would be ludicrous. What would happen if you said, I would knock you out, right? I take it personal because she is my wife. If I'm human and I take it personal, how much more personal does Christ take it when we attack his bride? I get some of the reason culturally we do it. I understand. You know, you can go into a local store and you, you try on a shirt. You try on a shirt and it fits a little snug. And in the fitting room, you say to yourself, man, I look fat in this. I'm not buying it. But you decide to wear it out into the lobby and check the lobby mirror. You wear it out and the cashier says, wow, you look fat in that. It's a different level of offense. But if I'm not careful... I'll think I'm just talking about myself when I talk about the church. But if I'm not careful, I'll forget, hey, hey, this church is his bride. This church is his bride. The church is Jesus' bride of all the adjectives, of all the metaphors, of all the illustrations that he could have used. He chooses something as incredibly sensitive and sacred as marriage. Let's go into the second half of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25, and this is what it says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. This weekend, 
as we talk about this first part of the series of That's My Church, of Jesus' Church, I want to start with the identity that Paul writes about, three aspects of being the bride of Christ. What does that really look like? I think the first thing is this. Number one is we have relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. Not only do you have a relationship with Jesus and God, but I believe that he has a relationship to the church. He has this relationship. Why else would he have described this ecclesia, this community, and be described as being devoted and caring as a husband cares for his wife? It says for husbands, this means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Real relationships require chase and trust. That's what romance is, right? I know, like, it's fun when young people first start dating and you'll hear their romances, right? You hear them talking. They'll be on the phone. She's like, oh, my goodness, I love Doritos. And what's the boy going to say? I love Doritos, too, right? She's like, I love to go to the skating rink, if they still have those. And he's like, I love to go to the skating rink, too, right? It's just they think romance is I love what you love. And because I love what you love, you'll love me. But those of us who are a little bit older have had some time in relationship, we realize that real love is not when we both love everything, but we love each other more than what we may or may not love. Right? My wife hates to eat at P.F. Chang's. She hates it. Hates it. But when we go on vacation, like we did this past week, you know where she'll suggest to go eat? P.F. Chang's, but she doesn't love P.F. Chang's. Why is she willing to go to P.F. Chang's? Because she loves me. Do you realize that Christ loves you so much, Jesus loves you so much, that he doesn't just love the Sunday version of you? Oh, man. Maybe that frees you up. The Sunday version of you, the the version of you that's like, all right, I'm going to put it together. I was joking with a friend of mine just this morning about how we grew up in church, and so we can flip it. You know, you could talk to us before church and be like, how are you doing? We're like, I'm just really having a tough time. And we get to church, and you're like, how are you doing? You're great. How are you? You know, we're good at it. Some of us, if we're not careful, we're so good at it that we think not only do people around us only love the Sunday us, but that Jesus does too. You know that Jesus loves the real you, the raw you. At the end of the day, you don't have to pretend to be somebody else. I think sometimes we buy into this idea that Jesus just loves me when I show up on Sundays. He just loves me when I do the right things, but he loves his church. He loves his church, and that's real, authentic relationship. I love that you and I, we, we probably have this in common, no matter how clear or tinted our lenses are. We probably agree with most people in or out of the church. The one thing that you and I probably despise the most when it comes to church is hypocrites, right? You never hear anybody talk bad about hypocrites and think they are one, though, right? Here's what's interesting about this word, hypocrisy. It's almost meaning to put on a mask. It doesn't mean that you aren't that. It just means you're not who you are pretending to be. So hypocrisy is not that in this church, in Jesus' church, that he expects you to be perfect. He just expects you not to lie about it. That he would say, I love you. I love you so much. I laid down my life. When he envisioned the church, he was saying, hey, I love you. 
as a husband would love his wife. Do we realize that we're loved that way this morning? Do we realize how much he loves the church? If we did, if we truly realized how much Jesus loved the church, I doubt that we would throw physical punches through words the way that we do. I wouldn't say that about that church or that about that church. Do you realize it's not just when you talk bad about your church, it's bad when you talk about that church because that church is still his church. His church. So for you and I, it's a reconciliation and a recognition to say, hold on, Jesus loves his church. The second thing is this, is it's a refuge. It's a refuge, it's a safe place. It's somewhere that you can run to. See, the greatest way to eliminate hypocrites is to eliminate the expectation that someone would have to live a life of hypocrisy. If we would realize that Christ loved us so much, that he loves us the Monday through Saturday us, then we wouldn't run from church, we would run to it. I've checked in on friends, they'll miss a couple of weekends, about like, how are you doing? What's going on? Sometimes they're busy, but, but most often when I talk to them, Man, I'm just not doing good right now, and I'm trying to get some things straight, and if I can get this in order, then I'll be there next week. I'm like, no, you missed the reason that God gave us this thing in the beginning. He gave us the church as a refuge to run to, not a requirement we have to run from. And so my lens can lie to me. My lens can lie to me and tell me that everyone around me is perfect and that I'm not. Do you know that everyone on your row, you ready? Lean in, I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret about every person on your row. They are a sinner, all right? You may not have known it, but they are. Nobody in this room is perfect. But Jesus laid his life down for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I love what Ephesians 5 says. Not only was he willing to give up his life for us, not only was he willing to do that, but in the beginning of that, it says this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And sometimes this terminology is used in a power structure that's very unhealthy and it, it causes a lot of damage. I love when Paul says this, he talks about submission. He says, okay, wives submit to your husbands. But then he says, and guys, die for your wives. So if you think submission stuff, we have to die, okay? But he says that Christ laid down his life for the church. But what did he lay down his life for? goes on and says this, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. That means this, that you're not perfect, that you do sin, that you do fail. But I can run to church because his promise is, is that he is making the church holy, pure, and clean. That means it's his responsibility. That means if I keep showing up and opening up, through trust and vulnerability, living a life of authenticity, then Jesus takes the responsibility on himself to make us holy, pure, and clean. Oh, it takes the pressure off. You stop running from it, you start running to it. You have a really bad week, you cuss seven people out instead of six this week, and you run to church. God, I, I can't change this about me, but your word promises that you're going to change me and transform me from the inside out. That's the Promise hope that we have that he would make us holy and clean. When we walk with Jesus, I think sometimes we try to pretend to measure up, right? We try to think, I've got it together. Like, I earned this. 
Somebody asks you about the church you go to, you're like, let me tell you about my church, right? Let me tell you what I do at my church. But it's almost like, it's like we were on vacation and we would see these couples walking in together. And you would see some of these guys and you're like, you outkicked your coverage, you know? My wife would be like, wow, he married up. And in that guy's mind, he probably knows it. Most of us do, right, fellas? But there's this confidence in walking and going, she knows me and loves me as I am. We married up. The church married up. It's Jesus who makes us the bride that we are. But when we walk, we can walk with confidence because of the love that he's shown us. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. So we have a relationship, we have a refuge. The third thing is this, is you have rights. You have rights. Now listen, you don't have American governmental rights as a church. This was, this was written thousands of years ago. This was written before there was any hope of a, of a Western civilization or America or church in America, right? But we're included because the ecclesia was about a people, not a place. So if you believe that your rights are under attack as an American church, can I just let you know something? Your rights as a Christian church are under far more attack. The spiritual attack on the church has been there from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Paul would have to write letter after letter warning them, don't be deceived into believing false beliefs. Don't fall into division or deceit. Don't, don't follow, fall into quarreling. He kept having to remind them. The enemy's after you. He wants to sift you like weak. He wants to break you apart. But you've got to stay strong in the faith. So you have rights. What are those rights? What does that look like? Well, I love what he goes on to write in Ephesians. He says this in verse 29. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church. He's saying that Jesus Christ feeds and cares for the church. But the exclamation of this passage is right here. And we are members of his body. We are members of his body. Real quick, I just want you to, to take a poll of the, the membership of your body. Real quick, would you just look down at your, your, your left foot and ask your left foot if they still want to be committed to you next week? You know, I'm pretty sure it's not going to talk back, but it is, you know. Could you imagine tomorrow? If you said, hey, left foot, you figure it out today. I'm not shooing you up. I'm not going to put a sock on you. You do it yourself. You're like, that is utterly foolish. That's why Paul gives us this. He breaks it down so simple and plain. Just as you would care enough to sock and shoe your foot, Christ cares for the church, every detail, every part of it. He's a loving husband and groom to this bride of the church, taking care for every need we have. When you go into the explanations of what this word body means, it not only means body, but it also means family. He is the head of this family. He walks in and takes care of every detail among us. I love that the hope that Paul gives is that when the church was started and that forever the vision and hope of the church wasn't that we had somebody here caring for people there, but that all of us here were cared by a God there. That he was always protecting us and caring for us. He even uses this in Romans. It says this in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he give us everything else? Who dares accuse him, us 
whom God has chosen for his own, no one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting at the right place of honor, at God's right hand, pleading for us. The right hand of honor, this is using this kingdom terminology. The person sitting at the right hand not only has blessing, but has power. That Jesus has extended the power to us through our relationship. Every once in a while, people will call, and, and my wife will know when they're calling and they don't know me, you know, because here's the way they'll call. Number one, they'll be like, yes, we'd like to extend your car warranty. It's run out. You know, you get those calls all the time, right? There's been a lot of break-ins in your area. Really? I talked to the five people down the street and nobody's gotten broke into. But they'll call. They'll say, can we speak to Mr. Powell? And I love sometimes my wife, she gets a little sassy. She'll say, you don't need to speak to Mr. Powell. You're speaking to Miss Powell. Oh, she lets them know. You see, of all the glamour of our wedding, we had a special day. Our wedding was beautiful. There were lots of friends there. But there was this moment, this moment at the end of the wedding, when all of the vows were done and everything had taken place, that she became part of me. As a matter of fact, when we came home like a week and a half, two weeks later, she went to the Social Security office, and she went from Brittany Marie Doré to Brittany Marie Powell. Oh, I, I just would look at it. I was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. When she took my name, she had access to the authority of everything of my life. Everything about me. She can step in and say, uh, I'm Miss Powell. We'll check into a hotel. Uh, and Mr. Powell, I'm Miss Powell, and we're checking in. She knows that she has authority. Do you know, as the bride of Christ, we have authority? We have this promised hope. What are those rights? Paul lays them out in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, you don't have to be fearful about the future of the church. We've been around for thousands of years. Why? Because Christ cares for us. The weapon may be formed, but it will not prosper because no weapon formed against us can succeed. That's a right we have as the bride of Christ. Rights that we have as a bride of Christ is that he'll never leave us or forsake us. That's why these weekend moments are important. Listen, we have groups. You have a group's catalog. I want you to dive into community. Those are important moments where people can know you. They can really live with you authentically. Can I tell you why these moments are so important? Because we can get together and we can celebrate how God's been good to this body. Oh, I may feel like the toe that got stumped this week, but he's been good to the foot and the arm and the belly, and he's been good. And I can know that my rightful place in the body of Christ is being cared for by Jesus himself. So let us boldly proclaim that we are the bride of Christ, that through our relationship with him, we do have this authentic relationship that he knows us and loves us that we can have a safe place as a refuge, that we would run into this place no matter how guilty we feel all week, we would run in and know that his glory is shaping our lives. Number three, we would know that we have rights, that we don't have to sit back and be attacked by the enemy, that we can circle up in community, believing for one another that our best is in front of us. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope there were some meaningful moments 
for you throughout the message at whatever spot on your spiritual journey that you're on. You can hit the subscribe button. That means we'll do all the work for you and the podcast will land right in your inbox each week so you can stay up to date with the weekly messages. Hey, uh, there's a couple of ways you can connect with us online, whether that's subscribing to YouTube, see some of the visual elements that happen throughout the week, or connect with us online through our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram. Just uh, type in at Anchors Church. Whether we're connecting with you online or in person, we want you to know that we feel like you're already more like family.